Acts chapter 18, we'll re- read verses 18 through 23. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. I pray that as I and my weakness present it, that you would take by your spirit this word and quicken it in the way that you desire to the hearts of this your people. May we be built up. May you be glorified. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. In one of his books, Philip Yancey quoted a speech that was given to the Royal Society of Medicine. It was given by a British psychologist. The psychologist said, The spirit of self-sacrifice which permeates Christianity and is so highly prized in the Christian religious life is masochism. And then it went on to say that Jesus was even more unbalanced and masochistic. Uh, he would no doubt say, say the same about Paul, that Paul was not balanced in his walk. But I would beg to differ. Paul was driven, I do not deny that, but he was driven by an eternal perspective which enabled him to have balance because he knew what was important and what was not important. Uh, Paul was driven by the power of God, and so he was empowered in the things that he engaged in. That gave him balance. Uh, He was driven by relationships. He was driven by the truth of God's Word, but he was able to relate to all of that by God's grace. Paul knew how to relax. He knew how to sacrificially work. But many times I think we struggle with the balance uh, between those two things. I suspect that some of us would think that Jesus was not being very balanced uh, sometimes if we were to have walked with him from day to day. Uh, Just as an example, there was one time he was so tired when they were on the Sea of Galilee that the waves were washing over the boat and obviously washing over Jesus, and he did not wake up. He was still asleep. He must have been absolutely exhausted from the things that he was engaged in. Now, you have to ask yourself, is that balanced? And yet, Jesus talked about the importance of gaining rest, and he called his disciples to come aside and to rest a little while, and he did indeed uh, have balance. He had his times alone. But I tell you, finding balance in our labors can sometimes be a struggle. There will always be more work available than you have hours in the day to be able to accomplish, or even... Uh, you know, the energy to accomplish. In fact, I'm convinced there are times when Satan will throw ministry at you, very legitimate ministry at you, because he's trying to keep you away from what God uh, is encouraging you to do. Jesus did not pick up every ministry opportunity that came his way. There were a lot of things he just did not deal with. 
including healings and opportunities to preach. Paul was the same way. He did not take up every ministry opportunity that uh, availed itself. Now, the same is true of leisure. There will always be far more leisure opportunities available than you have time and finances to be able to engage in. And I'm sure even by the end of the sermon, you're not going to totally have the answer as we go through this question, what is balance? Uh, Because it really takes a walk with God, a close walk with God, to be able to know uh, when to stay up all night praying like Jesus did on occasion and when to relax. Uh, God sometimes calls us to do things that may seem imbalanced to the world, but they really are balanced. Uh, They're balanced because we're not defining balance by what the world thinks, even by what we think. We're defining balance by the Scriptures, a God-centered perspective by the Lord's leading in our lives. Let's begin with the first phrase of verse 18. So Paul still remained a good while. Now, the implication is that because of the circumstances of the previous verses, he was able to stay there uh, for a good while, and there were three circumstances that would warrant that. First of all, God had clearly led him to stay there for a long time, according to verses 9 through 10. Secondly, God protected him so that he wasn't run out of town when he was brought before the proconsul, uh, Gallio. He wasn't put into prison, and so providentially, he's enabled to have more time to work. And then thirdly, the vow that Paul made, and apparently finished when he gets his hair uh, cut uh, in uh, this uh, first verse, indicates that Paul is finished with his commitments here. So he's finished with his commitments. And I think those three types of guidance continue to determine uh, what is and what is not balanced in our lives. There are times when we really, really want to move on, like Paul wanted to move on in verses 9 through 10, And God simply will not let us do that. There are times when we want to take a vacation, and God will not let us do that. Uh, Jesus was in that circumstance at least one time where he had already called his disciples aside, and he said, we've got to get aside and we need to rest. But then the crowds found him, and the disciples are so disappointed. But Jesus realizes this is the will of God for me in this circumstance, and he was able to... Uh, take on that work uh, without uh, getting frustrated. God's guidance can be a very, very helpful thing because it gives us energy even when we are dirt tired. You see, previous to verses 9 through 10 of this chapter that we looked at uh, earlier, Paul described himself in these words, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3. Now, Paul, uh, God's guidance to Paul gave him a renewed energy and hope and encouragement. It took away his fear as well, and it helped in other ways. God's guidance helps us to engage in the right kind of work, helps our work to be efficient, makes our works prosper. One of Kathy's favorite verses is uh, Isaiah 48, verse 17, which says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go, who teaches you to profit. And he does that by way of guidance. I've seen Christian businessmen who are just like Joseph. I mean, it's just so clear that God's blessing is upon their hands. It's not simply hard work. It's God enabling uh, him to prosper through the hard work 
But it's God mixing it together. He teaches us to prosper. If you have neglected to study God's guidance, then you've got a missing ingredient in having a balanced life. Uh, Drivenness will only take you so far because the Scripture says we've got to mix that with family and fun. and There's a number of different things. God wants us to mix it through. And not only that, what kinds of works uh, do we take on that are just going to spin our wheels? God's guidance can help us to avoid those things and to be involved in the things that he has determined to prosper. Now, the second side of that guidance is providence. Anytime providence opens up opportunities for us, we need to at least evaluate them. Is this an opportunity that I want to take on? Verse 17 afforded an unbelievable opportunity for Paul, and he just felt like he could not let it go. Of course, if you look at verse 20, there's another unbelievable opportunity that's open for Paul, and he does not take it. And so providence, providential opportunities all by themselves are not sufficient. You've got to wet it with God's uh, guidance But it is a great means of guidance. Businessmen sometimes have to jump immediately on an opportunity when it's not convenient and more timid people are going to totally lose out. Now, jumping on this opportunity may mean that this businessman is going to lose a lot of sleep in the next, uh, you know, a couple of weeks. But over the long haul, it's going to prove to be a balanced uh, life. And so... um, we need, to, we need to think through not just our, our um, schedules and what would be convenient and what would be pleasurable. We got to think through the providence of the Lord as well. I had one time uh, in a, a country uh, where there was a police presence and we had to abandon uh, partway through some of the ministry that we were engaged in. We went to a city and ran across, accidentally, uh, there is no accidents, right? God's providence controls everything. But ran across an opportunity to minister to a huge movement we would never have had the opportunity to even meet. And we've been up all day, all night, and part of this day, we're exhausted. Jonathan and I are just like, oh, do we want to take this on? But this is such a great opportunity we knew we had to take this. And it proved uh, to be well worth it. And so we cannot legalistically think Uh, only of our schedule as the factor uh, of dealing with open doors. We've got to be flexible. In fact, I think flexibility is one of the key factors in being able to be successful. So sensitive to God's inner guidance, sensitive to his providence, those two working together. And then thirdly, we have responsibilities and commitments that we need to keep. When verse 18 says, He had his hair cut off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow... It's clear that Paul is following a Jewish custom here for beginning and ending such a vow. He has commitments, and letting his hair grow out was a sign to others he's serious in keeping these commitments. In uh, Psalm 15, verse 4, it describes a righteous man, and it says that he is a man who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So basically what it's saying is even though he may lose money uh, in keeping his commitment, He goes ahead and he keeps it. Even though he may lose sleep, he may lose a business opportunity, if he's given his word, he keeps it. And if you can keep those three things in mind, it'll help you to not be frustrated when life seems imbalanced. God must always have the right to blue pencil in your plans, to change them, as it were, 
And if he does, it's going to be balanced whether it feels like it or not. And more importantly, it's going to be prospered by him. I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way that you should go. And so point number one, very, very important. Point number two, diligence in labors. There is no balance if you do not have diligence. There is no balance if you have not developed a Protestant work ethic. Paul had developed a Protestant work ethic long before the Protestants uh, ever existed, and he insisted that others have that as well. Verse 18 says, Paul remained there a good while. Verses 9 through 11 imply he remained there in order to work. Now, what's implied here is made explicit in First and Second Corinthians, uh, where it says he labored diligently in Corinth. First Corinthians 4.12, for example, he says, we labor working with our hands. Paul was not afraid of dirty work just because he was an apostle. In fact, one of the reasons he was so successful is because he had the philosophy, uh, you know, work never killed anybody, never hurt anybody. Um, those two books, First and Second Corinthians, say he labored very diligently. Comparing himself to other laborers, Paul said, I labored more abundantly than they all. First Corinthians 15, verse 10. He was a hard worker. He was not going to let anybody outwork him. He poured his all into what he did. When he wrote First and Second Thessalonians, which was right before this time, he chewed them out for being lazy. And he basically told them <coughs> that they needed to develop a Protestant work ethic. Um, if you have children who have uh, laziness, one of the two books that you ought to go through is First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, Paul said, it's so important, he says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That's pretty serious. No work, no eat. Okay, no food. Uh, we need to realize uh, that work was important. It's not a part of the curse. Uh, work was given before there was a curse. And even after the curse, work is one of the things that undoes some of the, uh, the negative aspects of the curse. It's blessed by God. Second Corinthians 12:23, Paul said, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. So he was a hard worker. Here's what Proverbs 12, verse 24 says. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Now, the interesting thing about that proverb is that both the diligent man and the lazy man have to work, but the work of the diligent man leads to taking dominion, being in charge, <coughs> and progress in his life, whereas the work of the lazy man is the very opposite. It takes away dominion from him, and he's forced uh, to work. In fact, some lazy people have to work hard, looking like they're working. When I worked uh, as a janitor in in the uh, hospital, there was this one guy. I don't know how he was able to get away uh, with it. It was a closed shop union, and uh, they had all kinds of rigmarole, and he had uh, kind of strings that he could control in the union. But he hardly ever did anything, and yet he always looked busy. And the joke that went around the place was this guy had to work harder avoiding work than if he had gone ahead and done the work in the first place. Uh, there was a, a sign in a San Francisco florist shop that said, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you ought to be here five minutes before quitting time. <laughs> Apparently, there was a lot of lazy people there. And it's my prayer that this would never 
ever be able to be said of you. Laziness is a horrible testimony. We need to teach our children the Protestant work ethic. Uh, Without it, we are leading an imbalanced life. Now, part of the problem is our culture teaches us to do the very opposite. We idolize entertainment and we idolize uh, pleasure. Apparently, the average American works 40 hours a week, uh, goes home after work, and um, watches several hours of TV, eats, and goes to bed. Then he gets up the next day and he does the same, and if he's particularly enthusiastic, he may go to a sports game. But um, in European countries, they've been mandated recently that they have to have a 35-hour work week. Can't work any longer than that. A week ago this past Tuesday, the New York Times uh, interviewed a French lady who just thought she was just way, way, way overworked. And they were asking, well, how many hours a week do you work? Well, I work 35 hours a week. And uh, she got 58 paid vacation days. That didn't count the long weekends. This was 58 paid vacation days. And she still thinks that she was working too hard. This woman is never going to prosper in life, even if she marries a rich person and is able to be lazy at home. She will not prosper. And so this morning, I urge you to look at Paul. He is going to take a vacation, but it's not because he hates work. He values work. He's building a heritage. Uh, Two weeks ago, we saw that he was indeed overworked in the first few weeks that he went to Corinth because he said he was just weak and trembling. It was just way uh, too much for him. But he immediately sought to resolve that bad situation by getting outside support, dropping one of his two jobs, division of labor, and pacing himself. But I believe that he thoroughly enjoyed his vacation that we're going to be talking about in a moment because he engaged in dominion with all of his heart. Now, if all you know is work, then you're not balanced. The Corinthian church... All they wanted for Paul was work. Uh, They had no sense of shame that they were not paying him. Uh, They made him work, you know, uh, to gain money in a tent-making job so that he could work hard in serving them. And uh, Paul said, basically, in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, that this was robbery, that they were not paying him. They were like the churches that believe it's their duty to keep missionaries humble by keeping them poor and overworked. And so Paul complained, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Paul's saying that's not right, and he instructed the churches in the importance of relaxation as well. Now let's just take a look at Paul's plans to take a vacation in this chapter, because if you don't plan for rest, it's not going to happen. At least in our household, it never happens if we don't plan for, for rest. It seems like the work is endless. You've got to plan for it. And that's what's implied in verses 18 and following. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. Now, Syria is where he started out from before. And if you take a look down at the last place he ends up in verse 22, you'll see that it says he went down to Antioch. Antioch was his home base of operations. That's where he started his trip. And so his second missionary journey has been three years, and now he's planning for a furlough. He's planning a break from missions. He's planning a time of recuperation and rest before he begins his third missionary journey. Now, before he can do that, he's got to make sure that everything is smoothly running. And so Paul leaves Silas in charge at Corinth. He's going to take care of the church affairs there. Then Paul makes some last-minute preparations in Centria, which is a town, it was a port town, very near to uh, Corinth. And then he's going to take Priscilla and Aquila, 
in Ephesus. Verse 18 says, Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Verse 19 says, He came to Ephesus and left them there. Uh, we're not told in this passage where he left Timothy and Titus, but if you look in the epistles, you'll see that they were a very much a part of this. So Paul is planning. He's making plans to take his furlough. He doesn't just bail out on his responsibilities. And let me tell you, sometimes it takes a lot of work to take a vacation and make it a meaningful um, vacation. There are preparation. By the way, this is one of the reasons why some people just don't like to go on vacation. It's so much work preparing for the vacation and then so much work catching up on all the work that you've missed out after you get back from your vacation. But we're going to be seeing in a minute we need to take those vacations anyway, even though uh, there is a lot of work to that. Now, from the map, if you look in your outlines, from the map there, you'll see that Paul doesn't make a lot of stops. He's in a hurry to get to this Passover conference, and he does just enough planning to be able to thoroughly enjoy his furlough. You'll see from the map that even though verse 18 says he set sail for Syria, he's got two more stops before he gets there. Those are critical for the next missionary journey. And we've already mentioned his vow. Apparently this was similar to a Nazarite vow, but uh, commentators point out it is different. There, there are some differences there. And it shows to me he's got no shame in continuing to be a Jew. Commentaries aren't quite sure what it's about, but apparently he's trying to get his affairs in order. It's a part of his planning. Unless we plan for breaks in life, and unless we take dominion of our time, life will go on and it will take dominion of us. The best breaks do not just happen. They are carefully planned. Now, a fourth thing that gave Paul balance was that he was willing to share the load with others. Uh, he wasn't one of those super saints who thought, well, it's all up to me. Some people just cannot relinquish work. Even if you take away some work from them, they'll just pick up some more work over here. They, they're very hard to help them out. But Paul calls Priscilla and Aquila, quote, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 16, verse 3. And the interesting thing about that phrase is they weren't ordained ministers. They weren't even a part of his church planting team. They're just ordinary Christians to help out in any way that they can. Aquila was a businessman who traveled uh, quite a bit. And from the little evidence that we have in the New Testament appears, he had businesses in Rome in Corinth and in Ephesus, all of the big cities. And it appears they loved to engage in hospitality, help pull out financially. They even hosted a church in their home. They did all of that as Christian lay people. And we'll see next week they even instructed Apollos more perfectly because he was a little bit messed up in some of his uh, theology. So when I say that he was willing to share the load, I'm not talking about other ministers like Titus and Timothy. I'm talking about seeing every believer as a minister of Christ. He was willing to involve Christians, be helped by any Christians. He saw Christ's mission as a mission to all believers. So point A, this attitude enables Paul to take vacations without losing his vision. <coughs> Part of what energizes people is having a vision. Okay, If you don't share the load, you've either got to You've either got to stop having a vision, or you've got to uh, you've got to never stop working. Those are the, really the options that you got. Uh, it's not the vision that fatigues; it's an unwillingness to share the load. In fact, uh, Nicholas Boyle said, "He is most fatigued who knows not what to do." 
Okay, vision's not fatiguing. It's energizing. And so even though Paul is on a, uh, starting to go on a vacation, what's he thinking about right now? Uh, he's thinking about what could be done in Ephesus, what could be done in Rome, and he's making plans for those places. His vacation is not a dropping of his vision. It's an essential component of his vision. From the book of Romans, it appears that Paul had been planning to come to Rome for quite some time. His joint ministry with Priscilla and Aquila had given him a longing to go there. It was through Aquila and Priscilla that he even knows about Ephesus, and he knows about Rome, and he's planning to, uh, to go there. Verse 19 says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there. In other words, this was their business destination. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, the only thing I want you to notice here is that he loved to preach. He was energized by preaching. This was a part of his vision. The vacation is simply a means of resting his body so that he will be more effective in fulfilling his vision. We need to rest our bodies from our labors, but our vision or our calling will still make us joyful and energized. In fact, it's who we are, even when we're on vacation. Now, I bring that up because it puts the next point in such stark relief. People who are driven, really driven by their vision, many times feel they cannot take their time off to take a vacation. Their calling drives them so much that they cannot quit. Uh, well, that's not Paul. He loves to preach, but I want you to look at verse 20. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. And that's remarkable. Here is one of the most amazing opportunities that's opened up to Paul in the last three years. And as we get to the next section, uh, next week, Lord willing, or later, um, we'll see this really was a remarkable, remarkable, fantastic opportunity. If I skip my vacation, I'll be able to plant a church because after all, these people are ready. They're hungry. They want to hear. This is a dream, you know, of a, of a preacher. It energizes him. But Paul refuses to stick around. He knows that the world's not going to fall apart uh, if he doesn't stay. Instead, he lets Priscilla and Aquila handle things there. Now, what's remarkable about this, as I've already mentioned, they're not preachers. They're not uh, part of his pastoral team. They're, they're, they have nothing to do with that, that aspect of the ministry. And yet, Paul leaves it in their hands. And sure enough, when he comes back to Ephesus, he finds a little church growing with Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos is preaching. Where did Apollos come from? Well, God sent them, and we'll look at Apollos uh, next week, but it illustrates things do not fall apart when you're willing to share the load uh, with others. An over-heightened sense of responsibility can be a curse in people's lives. Now, there are many women who cannot relax with their husbands because they've got boatloads more of work to do. Let me give you a little secret. Your work will never end. There's always going to be more work to done. Let me tell you another little secret. If you think that you are indispensable, you probably have not developed balance in your life yet. Paul has learned in city after city that he has been in, and he's been run out of town, lo and behold, he's not indispensable. The churches did not fall apart. God raised up new leaders. He was not indispensable. And some of the pastors... In China, I've had to learn this uh, principle, sometimes the hard way. The only work, uh, the only sleep, uh, many of them, four hours a night, and the rest of the time it's work, 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 
and they're gone away from home. They feel guilty if they're at home for more than maybe a couple of days with their family out of two, three, sometimes four months. They feel guilty for not working. And uh, what we have done is we have pointed out to them that some of the previous pastors who have been thrown in jail, and one of those pastors actually said, the reason God threw me into jail was to teach me that I'm not uh, indispensable, to force me to take a vacation, to force me to take time uh, to, to develop uh, my relationship with him. But we've pointed out that they were not indispensable. God raised up new pastors. Paul could do this because he saw every member of the church as a fellow worker. He doesn't just call Titus and other ministers as fellow workers. He does that in 2 Corinthians 8.23. But he calls all believers fellow workers. 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says, Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. Now, I probably don't need to mention this, but Paul doesn't just say, okay, it's time for vacation and just bail out and leave his responsibilities. No, he gets replacements. He, he didn't just... Uh, 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 jump ship without giving notice. He planned, he helped to provide, but he did take time off and he let others share in the burden. And so this sh- uh, shows balance. If you never take vacation because of your po- uh, boss's pressures and expectations, you need to think about this. And if you never take, you know, five, ten minutes off to spend time with your husband because there's so much work, you need to think about this passage. Uh, this really is an important uh, issue. Now, we get to the heart of this section, point number five, Paul's visit to Jerusalem and Antioch. And the first phase of this furlough was taken in Jerusalem, so that's where he's heading to in verse 21. Verse 21 says, but took leave of them. That's something very hard to do. He took leave of them. Sometimes finding balance in your life means taking leave of other people or it might mean saying, here's your hat and what's your hurry and asking people to leave. Uh, but these people are pressuring Paul. They're saying, you've got to stay here, you know, and what are we going to do? We're just going to falter. Here's new believers. And Paul does not buy into that. He lives by heaven's expectations, not simply by the expectations of other people. So he took leave of them. And some of you mothers need to take leave of your kids for five or ten minutes and spend time with your husbands. I know this for a fact. And you say, yeah, but there's so many things going on and my kids say it's an emergency. Yeah, most emergencies really are not emergencies uh, when when you really think about it. And your kids will fuss that it is an emergency, but he took leave of them. That's an essential step. Saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. Now this shows the priority that Paul made of this vacation, of this furlough. He, I must by all means keep this feast in Jerusalem. Sounds like it's a pretty high priority for him. Now let's look at the uh, feasts themselves. What were these feasts? The seven Jewish feasts or festivals were sort of like a mixture of drinking from a fire hose at an R.C. Sproul or a Worldview conference for the first six hours of the day and mixed together with, um, you know, what you might uh, eat at a, a Hawaiian cruise, 
partying for the second half of the day. Now, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration, but read Nehemiah 8 and some of the other festival descriptions, and you'll see, yeah, they're drinking out of a fire hose, intensive teaching for the first half of the day, and then they go eat the, 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 the fat and drink the sweet uh, for the rest of the day, and they are, are partying together. And so, I really think um, the kinds of festivals that they had were refreshing conferences that refreshed them in body as well as in spirit. And I highly recommend that you go to something like that if you can afford it. Now, that's a big if for some people. How in the world could I afford to do that? And so let me take a little detour here and explain how it was that most Israelites were able to come to those feast days. It could have been quite costly to take uh, a trip of several hundred miles. And there were businessmen like Priscilla and Aquila who just weren't able to make it to every single festival, but they all tried to make it to at least some, uh, to, to take some time off. One of the three tithes in the Old Testament was designed to provide money to be able to go to these conferences and to help out others uh, who could not. And let me explain the three tithes that they had. This continue to apply in the New Testament first tithe that they had was given to the local synagogue. Second tithe was paid to yourself. The third tithe, if you could afford it, was paid to the poor. And that was gathered once every three years. And so all three tithes, when you average them together, uh, would amount to a yearly amount of 23.33%. Now, before you faint, uh, let me just explain how all of that uh, worked out. The first tithe was 10% of your increase, and it all went to the local synagogue, just like to the local church here. Everybody gave that. And when I say everybody, I meant even the synagogues themselves tithed. Where did the synagogues tithe to? Well, they tithed to the temple uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, for example, Numbers 18, verse 26 says, Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them, as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. Nehemiah 10, verse 38 says, When the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse. And so the synagogue gave 10% of the money that they received to pay for national priests and the expenses of the centripetal missions effort. And we're going to be seeing that in the New Testament, they no longer gave to the temple, they gave to the church. But let me explain this concept of giving to that centripetal missions effort. There's a second rabbit trail here. Israel was supposed to be a priest to the nations. They were supposed to win the nations as converts. That's why they had a court of the Gentiles uh, in the temple. They were to be reaching out in the best way that they could. And the primary way that they did it was by attracting the nations as they saw a model nation living in the earth. Uh, God says he put Israel at the heart of the earth. In fact, he calls it the navel of the earth. And they were supposed to be like a magnet attracting the Gentiles as they saw, wow, what nation has such great laws as these? And what nation has such blessings as this nation does? And they would covet the gospel that Israel had, but it was missions. It was drawing things in. In the New Testament, God changed the way that missions works from centripetal force 
to centrifugal force. When you spin something around, the centrifugal force makes that object want to be going out. Well, that's the way missions is uh, in the New Testament. We're to be going out to the far reaches of the globe. But both are missions. And just as 10% of the synagogue's income went to the priests and to the, the centripetal missions effort, in the New Testament, at least 10% of a church's income needs to be going into missions that are totally outside of the local church. So that's the first tithe. The entire first tithe goes to the local synagogue. They, in turn, give 10% uh, to, uh, to uh, the temple. Now, there's a second tithe, and this is the one that's really relevant, a second 10% that a person would pay to himself. This tithe was used to enjoy the Lord on the Sabbath days and to enjoy the Lord in Jerusalem on the various festival days, and it was God's way of blessing His people. It was His way of forcing people to take a vacation and to really enjoy life. And let me give you two sample quotes from Deuteronomy, and I think it will help you to explain why it's called the rejoicing tithe. The first tithe was called a Levitical tithe. This one was called a rejoicing tithe. Deuteronomy 14. You shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So you shall rejoice in your good thing, which the Lord, in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. What a wonderful tithe. I think that's what Paul is doing in this chapter. He was spending money from the second tithe to refresh his body and his soul and he was not having a lick of guilt about it. He wasn't seeing it as being wasted time, not at all. And as was the custom, he likely was bringing people who could not afford to uh, with him, perhaps other uh, Levites, other ministers with him. So that would be equivalent to having a savings of 10% of your money to buy wine and chocolates and great steaks to be using on every Sabbath day, not your Monday to Saturday groceries, but every Sunday... Uh, having just a, a better meal uh, than you would ordinarily have, and then sprinkled throughout the year to be spending money on things, uh, you know, uh, food and fun and uh, travel expenses and uh, the costs that would go into going to a John Piper conference or a um, R.C. Sproul conference or something like that. I think that's a pretty good parallel of what the Old Testament was doing. The third tithe, or 10%, was given once every three years, and so if you average it out and they're saving up every year, you'd be saving an additional 3.33% of your income. This was given to the poor. Obviously, the poor didn't do that because they're the ones who were receiving it. The second and third tithes were for those who were able to afford to do it. And I believe if people would return to the three-tithe system, there would be, most people would be able to engage in refreshing vacations. And people who couldn't afford it would be helped out by brothers and sisters who could to at least have the occasional vacation. Maybe a, a couple of days off. You guys need to just go out to a, you know, a conference here and enjoy yourselves. Relax. Um, but God delights in delighting His people. He loves to refresh their bodies. He wants them to have balance. And He's given them one day off per week to refresh their bodies and their souls. And even though the Old Testament feasts are no longer binding, the New Testament it should be seen as not being less gracious, 
but more gracious. So Paul says, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. He was looking forward to it. Verse 21 continues, But I will return again to you, God willing, and he sailed from Ephesus. Now, work can usually wait when you're trying to fit in a big event like a vacation. And if you think you don't have time, you just can't afford the time to take a vacation, ask yourself this question. Is anybody going to die if uh, we take this vacation? Is there going to be somebody losing a job, having a major catastrophe? Uh, you know, what major emergency is going to happen if I take this vacation? Because I think usually most emergencies are self-imposed. They're not truly emergencies uh, that would happen. Uh, they're, not, they're, they're no more critical than Paul's emergency in, in, in Ephesus. Who's going to take over? There's no minister. There's nobody qualified to take over. Well, most of our emergencies are no more critical than those, and usually it's our own expectations, our perfectionism, and the expectations of others that drive us to be workaholic. Work can usually wait. So Paul's turning down a pretty big thing here, and he does it anyway. And then finally they get to Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, When he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church. From Caesarea, there's only one place that you could go up. Now, we're not talking about north and the maps. Uh, Jerusalem's south, but in terms of elevation, Jerusalem is up. And so if you look on the margin, you'll see to Jerusalem, and all commentaries uh, hold that that was, the, uh, that was the situation here. So what he's doing is he's having fellowship with the church, and the church is having its own Passover festival. They don't want to go to the humanistic festival of the temple. They're having their own uh, a festival, he goes to the church, and keep in mind, this is the New Testament. The literal days of the month that uh, they did in the Old Testament, yes, Galatians and Colossians says that's no longer binding, but let me tell you something, the principle of refreshment continues to be a New Testament principle. Otherwise, why would Paul feel it's so important for him to go here? It's not enough to just dis dismiss it, that's Old Testament. You've got to ask, what's the principle that's being taught? Verse 22 goes on to say, He went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed. And then that begins his third missionary journey. But he stays a while in Antioch. This is a true furlough. And we ought not to begrudge our missionaries furloughs. In fact, I believe that Paul probably had more refreshment on his furlough than a lot of missionaries do. Because nowadays, missionaries, they've got to travel all over the states and Canada trying to you know, visit all the churches that are supporters and tell them what's going on. They're exhausted by the time they get home. But Paul, I think, was able to spend time with his old friends that he had had there to relax, to help his church. Yeah, he probably was working during this time, but much less stressful schedule and just get his worn-out body recuperated. You don't have balance if you don't take vacations. But balance includes the last point in your outlines, that Paul went back to work again. Okay, Paul was going to leave on yet another missionary journey. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. And I think the principle here is, even when you're older, you know, you retread, you don't retire. Actually, there is a biblical principle for retirement, and you can find that in Numbers 8, verse 25, where the priests retired from their hard manual labor in the temple at age 50, but they didn't retire from ministry altogether. They continued to share their wisdom and to engage in other ways of ministering to the body of Christ. 
Now, some of the best ministries have begun as people have retired from one kind of work so that they could be freed up to engage with others. So that, that's basically the principle here. Paul retreads, and he's raring to go again. And we're not going to take the time to look at it, but Paul goes back to Ephesus where he's going to spend three full years ministering in that city. It becomes one of the most stable uh, churches that Paul planted. But on the way to Ephesus, he travels through the regions that he had planted churches at in his first missionary journey. Paul was constantly checking in on and writing letters to and sending other workers or in some way trying to make sure that what he had started would not fall through. He wanted his ministry to last. And I think that should be our desire as well, to pass on a legacy to others, to have a lasting impact upon this world. There's many different ways that we can do it. For sure, one of the most important ways is investing in our children, raising them up, investing leadership principles into our children. But uh, you can invest in the lives of those that you're extending hospitality to. You can have a lasting impact by winning souls. Uh, you can have a lasting impact by helping the pastor, the elders, the deacons, and every, all of the other members of the church because what you're doing is you're investing in their lives uh, and it's only lives that we ultimately can take uh, that we can take with us. But till the day that we die, we are called by God to a balanced life of labor and refreshment. So the pattern is, God gave six days of labor. He gave one day to just enjoy, rest before the Lord. And then liberally, throughout the year, He sprinkled uh, numerous vacation days. There were 52 weekly Sabbaths in the year in which Israel could rejoice. And then Israel was given an additional 47 vacation days. Okay, these were the festival days. One of the festivals was two weeks long, another was eight days long, but altogether they had 47 additional uh, vacation ways. So when we make fun of the Europeans for their short work weeks and their long, they may have something to what they're doing there. I think it's still a little bit humanistic, but they may have something there. What is balance in our labors? Who defines it? I think we need to see the scriptures as defining that, and balance is in part achieved as we experience the reality of God's presence and His lives through guidance and through His providence. It's experienced in part by uh, knowing the power of God in our labors and the power of God in our relaxation and refreshment as well. It's experienced in part in the community of the saints through the fellowship of the Spirit. In part, it's finding weekly and periodic times of refreshment for both body and spirit, so that we can once again go out there with energy and begin to take dominion for King Jesus.